Hebrews chapter 10. Um, repetition is the mother of learning. And so let me repeat something to you. Parents, get signed up for that parent seminar. There you go, brother. 20 bucks later, Patrick. All right. Now, we would love, we do these things not just because we're bored. We got plenty of things to do too. We do these things because we believe these are the things that are needed to help uh, equip you uh, as you try to navigate the minefield that is parenting. And so we want to provide that for you as, a, as an opportunity. And then the marriage matters thing, we're looking forward to that. It's a good time of walking through some of the things that, that quite honestly, marriage is very simple. All you married people say, amen. amen. See, it's very simple. So you got nothing to worry about, but you should still come. All right, Hebrews chapter 10. As you continue to think about the repetition, one of the things that um, a couple of us in staff meeting, even this week, as we were walking through the passage together, were commenting on is how many times we, we, we are told the same thing repeatedly by our author here uh, in the book of Hebrews. He talks um, about that intentionally and continues to go over and over again, the fact that Jesus is greater than, Jesus is better than, Jesus is more superior than. And he's talking about he's, you, you place Jesus up against, next to, to angels, next to Moses, uh, next to priests, next to the sacrifices, next to the, the tabernacle. No matter what you place Jesus next to, Jesus wins. I mean, he, he is supreme and supremely over everything that you could possibly imagine or even think that would be there. Nothing compares to Jesus. And so in these first nine chapters, as we've walked through the book of Hebrews, we've been told repeatedly who Jesus is, uh, what he's done. This is how it's better than everything and every, everyone else. And, 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 and all of these things are pointing us to the fact that Jesus came to deal with our greatest need. And when he came to deal with our greatest need, he did it in a way that no one or no thing can possibly do like he did. He delivered us from our sin. He purchased us from our sin. He redeemed us from our sin. And that's where you got to put your, your anchor, your faith, anchor your trust. That's where you need to put your hope, put your confidence. And then, then as he continues one more time this morning to hit us with, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. It's going to lead us to the place where we get to take all of those things in the previous nine chapters and begin to apply them. He's going to make application. How, what do you do with the facts of who Jesus is and what he's done? And there's going to be a few commands for you and I to say, stop trusting in anything or anyone else because obviously Jesus is greater than He's going to tell us to take advantage of what he's given to us, to live boldly and courageously, to, to walk securely into the presence of God. He's going to say, look around at the world that you are living in. See how this is obviously not where you are supposed to be. You are living as an exile here. This is not home. He's going to then give us a few examples of what those things look like. He's going to say, let's, let's, I want you to leave your home and your family and go to a place that God is calling to you, that you don't even know where it is yet. You just trust me, God says, and we get to see the example of Abraham carried out as he pursued God in faith. He's going to talk about Moses who chose to suffer with the people of God, considering being with the people of God and obeying God to be worth more than all the treasure you could possibly find in the land of Egypt. He's going to tell us about a woman who chose Jesus, even though her family, her culture, her community uh, was not choosing Jesus. It tells about people who, who, because of their trust and faith in Christ, were able to put armies to flight, who experienced huge victories, who shut the mouths of lions. And in the very same breath, he's going to tell us about these people who put their faith and trust in Jesus, and instead of shutting the mouths of lions, they were devoured by lions. Mocked, beaten, tortured, torn in half, 
What we're going to learn is we're approved by God through faith in who Jesus is and what he's done, not based on our individual results. God was, it says in Hebrews 11, God's not ashamed to be called their God. That's, that's what I want on my tombstone. I pray one day when I get to see him face to face, I'll hear those words, well done, and realize that my God is not ashamed to be my God. You think about those stories in heaven? What that's going to be like? Sit across from Moses as he tells you about the Red Sea parting in half. As Noah talks about getting all those animals together on the boat, as men and women, men and women sit in the presence of Christ and look at you and tell you the story of how, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they were torn in half. Our modern day persecuted church. There'll be brothers and sisters who will tell us about how they have been hiding in the jungle with their family because daddy was a pastor and the government wants to get rid of him. There'll be people who tell us that they spent most of their adult life in prison being tortured. There'll be men who tell us that their families were murdered before their eyes. But Jesus is worth it. Can you live like that? Could, could you live like that? Are you, are you going to break out your story when you get to heaven? I had to wear a mask for a few months. Too soon? The only way we can live the way the heroes of the faith have lived is to be convinced of who Jesus is and what he's done. And that's why our author keeps repeating it because it is so important that you get it. It's like soldiers who are drilling over and over and over again before they get to the battle so that, that their actions and reactions just become second nature. It's the doctors and the surgeons who practice so many times so that when the time comes for that most intricate and delicate of procedures, they're ready. That's what the repetition is for, friend. And that's what our author is going to tell us. So look at me at verse 1, Hebrews chapter 10. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Now, I think this is probably the 12th time that our author, and literally, I'm not exaggerating, that's not even like a preacher 12th where it was only three, okay? This is the 12th time our author has used this, this illustration of imagery of shadows, of pictures, as he talks about the Old Covenant. Now, I want to put a picture in front of you. Here we go. Um, can you tell who's not in church today? If any of you tell her I used her picture, we're not friends anymore. I'm going to tell you. This is my favorite picture of my wife, Stephanie. Um, I can literally close my eyes and see it because I see her. But that's not her. It's just a picture of her. 
It's not her. It, it doesn't laugh at my jokes like she does. It, it, it doesn't make me laugh. Now, here's a little secret behind the scenes. I know some of you are like, Frank, you're funny. No, I'm not. She's hilarious. She's just not courageous enough to say it out loud. So she whispers it to me. I say it out loud, get the laugh, and she gets a high five. <laughs> now, a picture might, might represent her, but it's, it's not her. I mean, what I see here is, is this, this beautiful woman that I fell in love with over 30 years ago. This is our, because of the way math works, 31st Valentine's Day together this week, which is crazy. And while the pictures may do a good job, a fantastic job even of reflecting beauty, that's only a single dimension of who she actually is. There's a depth to who she is that you can't possibly get from a picture. You can't tell that she is an artist. You can't tell that she is a person who, is, who has got this creative way of thinking that she can fix almost anything that's been broken. She is, you can't tell from the picture, she is fearless in the face of home repair which her husband is not. <laughs> you can't tell that she's a ferocious disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. My favorite thing about her, you can't tell, is, is this woman is more passionate about family than any other person you have ever met. And I don't mean just blood family. She is so passionate about church being family, it, it, it amazes me. She, you can't tell that this woman is both my biggest encourager while at the same time being incredibly unimpressed with me. <laughs> that's, that's why I love her. And the picture serves a purpose, right? It's, it's, only, it's only for a short time you should be looking at a picture. I, I get to see her when she gets home from her trip this weekend. How weird would it be for me to pick her up at the airport, bring her home, sit in the room and pull up that picture and stare at it while she's right there? How weird would that be? That would be weird. Some of you don't think that's weird. It's weird. The law was good, so don't get me wrong on that. The law was good, but it's just a picture. It's a shadow. As we've talked about in previous weeks, it couldn't bring about perfection. And that logic continues. Look at verse two. <clears throat> Otherwise, if it was able to bring perfection, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrifices would have been a one-time thing if they were effective. But, but that's not the case. They aren't a one-time thing. They're a repeated event. And so now when you and I see the blood, as we talked about last week, there are reminders that come with the blood. And the reminder is you and I are sinners. The reminder is God is a holy God and God's holiness and our sin can't just sit down next to each other and get along like famous friends. Instead, something must be done for our sin. So the reminder isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just not able to take away our sins. So it serves a purpose like the picture does. And the purpose is this, the offerings and the sacrifices that you keep bringing year after year after year are totally inadequate for you to fix your sin problem. And so what that should lead you to believe after you've done the same thing 42 times, any of you had that car, by the way? I've tried to fix this car 42 times. I have fixed the same piece 42 times and the problem keeps coming. Guess what's that telling you? It ain't that piece that needs to be fixed. You need to be fixed. 
And this is here right now. All right. Sorry. There's some ringtones that just get you. So right. um, you need to be fixed. So, so what these pictures are doing, what the blood is doing, is saying over and over again, your, your sacrifices and offerings are inadequate, man. You, 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 need, you need to do something bigger and better with your, your problem. And that's where verse five goes. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, catch that, he, as he was coming into the world, he said, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, God. Okay, that, that chunk right there, five, six, and seven can get somewhat confusing, but let me help you explain it to you. Verses five, six, and seven are a quote out of Psalm 40. Psalm 40, the psalmist is David, is David and he's, he's writing this, he's, he's penning this, and what he says is, listen, God, we know you well enough to know this. You don't take joy in our sacrifices, in our offerings. What you take delight in is when you have my heart. What you take great delight in is, is my obedience. That's what pleases you, which is a significant problem, isn't it? I am totally and unequivocally unable to obey God the way I'm supposed to obey God. Which means I'm in a lot of trouble. It'd be kind of like somebody coming to me saying, Frank, well, you can eat after you've dunked a basketball without any helps. I'm going to bed hungry a couple of nights in a row, friends. Because it is impossible for me to dunk a basketball and here for God to say, listen, you, you, I don't take delight in your sacrifices or your burnt offerings. I, it's your obedience that I do actually delight in. It's, it's pointing us to the old covenant yet again, the law. And, and I'll just boil it down and super simplify it to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not controversial. And I know some of you are like, but they've been in the news. Yeah, no, no. The Ten Commandments themselves are not controversial. Where you post them is controversial. But the Ten Commandments themselves, nobody's saying like, okay, wait, it says lying is a sin? It says, it says, it says is, is, is lusting after my neighbor's wife is wrong? Being a jerk to my mom and dad is frowned upon? There is nobody in our society that's like, I challenge that. And yet as simple as they might be, they're impossible for us to fulfill because we're sinners. I find this, this, this passage in particular uh, encouraging and, and a little overwhelming because what's interesting is, is David is quoted here. And yet when you read the quote, listen to what he says. You didn't desire a sacrifice, but you prepared a body for me. You didn't delight in whole offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings. So then I said, see what is written about me in the scroll? I've come to do your will. God, what? this is David speaking. And, and what is universally accepted is that David is actually speaking a, a prophetic word about the one that God himself would send into the world one day. This is a prophetic word about Jesus himself. You wrote about this, about me in the scroll. The scroll could be the Old Testament scriptures. It could actually be the Lamb's book of life that was written before the foundation of the world. The long and short of it is this, before creation, Jesus was the plan. And the plan was to come and fulfill the picture that the law continued to paint, a picture of, of 
ineffective sacrifices that just couldn't take away sins and give us the forgiveness that we absolutely needed. But here's the, here's the amazing thing. The plan for Jesus Christ wasn't just him to come and give up his life and die for us. That was a very important part, but it's even more than that. Look at verse eight with me. A little commentary on Psalm 40 is what our author does here. After, after he says above, you didn't desire delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. And by this will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Okay, so here we go. A little commentary again. So the sacrifices aren't cutting it. God, I know you want my whole life obedience. And well, for you and I, that's a huge problem. That's not a big problem for Jesus. That was his full-on mission. He came to wholeheartedly pursue and obey the very will of the Father. And good news for every single one of us, he accomplished it perfectly, something you and I could never do. So the sacrifice of Jesus brings the forgiveness of sins, and we need that. But the obedience of Jesus during his life, doing the will of the Father, is something that we need as well. Let me explain. Look at verse 11. Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He's now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Now, again, I don't know how many times I didn't go back and count, but again, this is a familiar picture that our author continues to throw back at us. The, the picture of the, 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 the there's no chairs in, um, in the tabernacle, and so the priests stand forever, day after day after day, but when Jesus offered his one sacrifice, he sat down because it was, in fact, finished. And so, so, so now we can understand the sacrifice of Jesus is accomplished. And what it is accomplished is accomplished forever. It is accomplished uh, our forgiveness. And so, so his blood on the cross has, has, has been given to us to carry away our sins. Now, leading up to that point, his entire life, as he obeyed God in each and every avenue of his life, his obedience has been also credited to our account. That's the righteousness of Christ, and that's, that's finished. That's why this really uncomfortable thing gets said in verse 14. I'm gonna see. So just think through this for a second. If this is you, ready? So verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. All right, you ready? If this week you lived perfectly, raise your hand. Don't do it, because that'd be your first one of the week. Yeah, that, that's a little tension there, isn't there? And the author is telling me that I have been perfected. And yet I've done things this week, I've done things this week, I've done things this morning that would demonstrate that that's not actually true. So what's he saying? He's saying this, we have been perfected forever and that our sin has been forgiven and we have been given a standing that will never be taken away from us. And that standing is this, justified. You have been justified. What does justified mean? It means it's, there's an easy way to remember it. It's just as if I'd never sinned. 
That's your new identity. That's your new name. That's your, your new position forever. Perfect. <laughs> You're all looking so amazingly uncomfortable. It is true. And there's truth in the perfection. There's truth in the, I don't know what to do with perfection. Here, let me, let me help you. Let me just prove it one more time. The word you are, 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 have been made perfect, that is actually conveniently in the perfect tense. There you go, grammar people. And the perfect tense is a completed action with results that are still in effect. You have been made perfect. You have been perfected. Your name has been changed forever. For who? Those who are being sanctified. Now, now, just like the word you have been made perfect is in the perfect tense, it's a past event with ongoing effects. You are being sanctified is in the present tense, which means a continuing action, a process that is still happening right now. You are being sanctified. You are being actively set apart. You are, and it's this crazy verbiage that we use, which we sometimes are like, the Bible is so confusing. No, English is confusing, Right? I mean, I'm going to, so, so do you enjoy running? I mean, the answer is no, but that's not what I'm doing. This is a grammar illustration. Yeah, running, okay. Is your refrigerator running? Is the water running? I mean, you got three different, so English is the confusing part here, not, not the Bible, okay? So it's this, you have been <laughs> perfected. That's a past event with ongoing results. My standing before God has been changed forever. I stand before him Perfect. I am being perfected. That's the, the event that is happening right now, the process of continued action. I am being perfected. I'm being changed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ as I live in this crazy place and my life is upside down, inside out, and I'm getting beat up from every angle. And yet God's saying, I've got everything under control. I'm taking all these things and I'm forcing them together, not just for your good. You're like, oh, that was great. No, 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 no. So that you'll look like Jesus. And then, not only have you been perfected and you are being perfected, you will be perfected. What does that mean? On that glorious day, we hear a trumpet and all of a sudden we all disappear. That glorious day, we open our eyes and the last thing we saw might have been mommy and the next thing we see is Jesus. That glorious day when we stand in heaven and we're looking around like, what is happening up here? Is that Peter? I need to hide. I said some gnarly things about him. But this passage is talking about we are being perfected. We are being sanctified. Christ is working in us. He's continuing to make us more like him every day. What's happening in our day in and day out life is we are in the process of learning what it means to have that name that has been given to us. What it means is every day we are catching up to what we have been declared to be in Jesus Christ until one day we see him face to face. So many of you, and I'm not exaggerating, I wish I could show you a mirror. Many of you were visibly like, hmm, perfect, I'm perfect. Yeah, I'm perfect. <laughs> how, how can you know? How can you know? How can you know? Well, I don't need to come up with an answer because our author has got one for us. Look at verse 15. For by one offering, let me, sorry, verse 15, the Holy Spirit 
also testifies to us about this. For after, he says, this is the covenant I'll make with them after those days, the Lord says, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds, and I will remember their sins and their lawless acts no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. How can we know that this perfection is ours? Let me go back and read 14 and 15 to you. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. Now, I want to do a little grammar thing with you, okay? Again, we've been doing that a little bit today. This one's even easier. This one's easier. Um, I got the verses out of order, Sam, and that's my on me. So I'm going to um, 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 hit this one, and then I'm going to go to this one. Here we go. Uh, yeah, that one. Um, so there's another, it says there's, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. That means there's another one. So who's the other one? Well, 1 John 2, 1 says this, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, happens occasionally, don't you say? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And it also says that in Hebrews 7, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. So, so when it says we have this other one, this other one also testifies, he's telling us, you know what, there is one that's already doing this for you. And let me, let me help you with that. The father himself is the judge. Jesus is interceding for us. Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our lawyer. We're being accused. And there sitting on the right hand of God is our legal counsel. Bearing witness for us. Being our lawyer, our attorney. Now when accusations are made against us as believers in Jesus Christ, Jesus as a lawyer doesn't use the legal um, argument of, I'm just going to beg for mercy. So you sit there at that table and say nothing. Father, please, please just be kind to him. Please, we just give him mercy. A good lawyer never does that. No, a good lawyer says, hold on, I'm going to make a case based on solid evidence. And so as the accusations come, Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father as our legal advocate, as our attorney, as our lawyer will say, hey, Father, listen, your character demands justice. And that guy right there, yeah, he's a sinner. And the cost of his sin is most certainly death. Father, I, I've paid that debt in full. Here, look, here's my hands. Here's my side. So, so Father, your justice demands that you don't try to extract a second payment for his sin because it's already been paid for in full. Thank, thank God for our intercessor the one who paid our debt, showed the receipt and claims me as his. So Jesus is enough. Jesus is absolutely enough. But listen to how gracious God is that he gives us more than just one legal representative. Because here in our text, he says, you know what? The Holy Spirit also testifies to this. The Holy Spirit also is telling us this. He is testifying to us that this is Ours. The language is, is very similar. Okay, now I need to go back a couple there to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. Thank you. And it says that I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. See, he is the spirit of truth. 
The word is unable to receive him because it doesn't, like, it doesn't see him, it doesn't, doesn't know him, but you, you do know him because he remains with you and he will be in you. The word is very similar there. In our text, it says that the Holy Spirit testifies. He bears witness. In this text in John, it, it says he is our counselor or our advocate. Obviously, the legal connotations carry over, similar to what's being used about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, being our legal counsel between us and the Father. So here, in, in our text in Hebrews, he, he is the one who bears witness for us in a legal proceeding. But get this, he's not talking to the judge. What kind of attorney doesn't talk to the judge? Well, see, See, our legal counsel, Jesus, is having that conversation with the judge. This tells us the Holy Spirit is testifying to us. He's given to us to encourage us, to comfort us, to make legal arguments to us. He's at our right hand. He's testifying to the things that are true. So as Jesus is, is, is interceding on your behalf, Holy Spirit is sitting back here at the desk, putting his hand over the microphone and whispering into your ear. And what he's saying is, hey, hey, you've been perfected by Jesus' righteousness. The blood of Christ has carried away your sins. You have been forgiven. You have got access to walk into the presence of the Father. You can live with a clear conscience without guilt. For all intents and purposes, your sins aren't just gone, they are forgotten. Your name is no longer the sin that you committed. Your name is child of God. Don't you forget it. I've had a terrible week. I have screwed up more ways than I can even begin to, to, to lay out for you. So I don't deserve to come into God's presence. I don't deserve him to hear me. No, 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 none of us do. Once you were use the word deserve, you've already screwed it up. See, the way we sound when we say that, it sounds like, it sounds like we think we're carrying a big old heap of good behavior to the altar. We're just gonna lay it out there and be like, I think verse 18, now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin, tells us the altar is closed for business. Take your piddly little good behavior and leave it in the car because that altar is covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. So not only did he give you forgiveness and righteousness and the ability to have a clear conscience and freedom and access to the holy God, He's given you himself. The Holy Spirit of God doesn't just abide with you. He will be in you. The repetition has been driving home the point time and time again. You need to rest not in anything else, but in Jesus and what he's accomplished. Stop leaning on anything else. And we're always like, but here's my good deeds. And he says, the altar's closed. The blood of Christ has already purchased you. His obedience has already made you perfect in the, in the presence of God. 
But God was so committed to make sure you understand the freedom that is yours, that you'd stop running back to the slavery that is sin. He gave you himself to keep covering the mic saying, you're the son of God. I know this week looked a little rugged, but God will never turn his back on one of his own. Father, thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our lives to remind us of truth. Thank you that he's, he's testifying to the truth of what Jesus has done and will do. Thank you, Father, that, that we can live in freedom. God, I pray, I pray you'd release the person who is here with us from the bondage that is theirs of a guilty conscience, not because they've done a good deed, not because they gave enough in the offering, not because they carried their Bible, but because they have come to recognize the fact that they are in Christ and loved by you in ways that we can't even begin to understand. God, would you, would you give freedom to the people who need freedom today? Whether it be an unbeliever or a believer, would you give them freedom? Hey, listen, before I close, as we, as we end our time and we're gonna sing, man, I wanna invite you. I wanna invite you to pray. I wanna invite you to talk to God. I want you to invite you to embrace the freedom that he has given to you. I want you to, to listen to the whispers of the Holy Spirit as he keeps saying, no, you're his, you're his. Run to the freedom that he's offering. So if that means you just grab somebody next to you and pray in your seat or you pray by yourself, or you head back to the prayer corner, whatever it is, we wanna make sure that you know you child of God, are loved. And if you're not in Christ, phew, there is no better day than right now. Today is the day of salvation. Not because I declare it, but because God has made it available to you. And so today, today, would you seek him? Father, thanks for what you've done. Thanks for what you will do. Thank you for our freedom in Christ. May we celebrate it well. It's in the matchless and holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Would you stand and, and close with us?